Well, good morning. I'm John Hattenberger, one of the elders here, as well as discipleship pastor, and it's my pleasure to bring the word this morning. It's been a couple months since I preached, and um, as time would have it, I've got some kind of crud, so if I sound particularly froggy, it's not because I've been listening to Barry White Records. <laughs> Only people over 50 would know that one. My wife thought I reached puberty this week, but she was mistaken. Uh, so anyway, if I, if I start coughing and hacking and wheezing, uh, I don't know what to tell you. We have no backup at all. We just have to plow through it. <clears throat> so bear with me this morning. Anyway, we're continuing with, with the study of the letter of Jude, which we've called Contend. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you'd open up to Jude. Uh, as you know, it's a sort of one page in your Bible. So if you find Revelation, which is the last book in your Bible, and turn back one page, but not two pages, you'll find the letter of Jude. And the, the purpose of Jude, Jude's whole reason for writing, he's got uh, laid out very clearly for us in Jude verse 3. Jude only has one chapter, so uh, we don't say Jude chapter 1 verse 3, it's just Jude verse 3, where it says here that Jude writes, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And the word contend, of course, means to struggle or to fight or to strive or to wrestle. Uh, and so Jude was encouraging uh, the recipients of this letter, the church there, to uh, fight for the faith. The faith being the truth of the gospel message, which is very clearly laid out for us in our Bibles. And so he was telling them to, to wrestle uh, for the faith. Why? Why did he think it was necessary to remind them to contend for the faith? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, Jude, verse 4, where he writes, uh, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude refers to these people as certain people, which I think is a kind of an unusual phrase. Jude doesn't actually tell us who they were. He doesn't name them. He doesn't tell us what kind of people they were, but he gives us a lot of descriptions about them. And we've covered that in the last couple of weeks, and we'll cover that again uh, here this morning. But he tells us that there, uh, one thing about them is they held false beliefs. You can see this very clearly in verse number four. They had two false beliefs, uh, very prominent. Uh, the first was that they had perverted the grace of God into sensuality. And what that means is that they recognized that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and that his death on the cross and our ability to have our sins forgiven was a gift. It was a free gift. So it was grace given by God freely. But they had falsely or improperly assumed then that since they were forgiven for their sins for free, they could just go do whatever they wanted to do. They figured they could just go out and sin as much as they wanted to do so. And then the second thing where they were a bit off is they said that they, were, they, they denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They denied Jesus Christ. They either refused to believe or didn't believe that Jesus is coming back a second time. The second time to execute judgment on sinful people. And so they rejected that judgment. They didn't take it to heart. And so these people were thinking, wow, I can go around, I can sin all I want. I don't have to worry about judgment whatsoever. Now these are obviously very serious errors. And we'll come back to them in a moment. So who were these certain people? If you've read through the book of Jude, and hopefully many of you are memorizing it as we have been challenged by our senior pastor, 
I'm about halfway through it myself, and I'm kind of stuck, but continue on. If you read it, you might ask yourself, who are these certain people that he's talking about that had crept into the church unnoticed? Is he talking about uh, non-Christians who showed up one Sunday morning with all kinds of false beliefs that they had gathered from other places in their lives? Was he talking about immature Christians who didn't have a firm grasp of doctrinal truth? Was he talking about mature Christians who had come in but were bringing along with them some baggage of false doctrine? Or perhaps he was talking about false teachers who had come into the church and were now spreading the false doctrine among the church members. Or he might have even been talking to elders or pastors who were, had some sort of error in their doctrinal beliefs. I think if I took a poll this morning, and I did take a poll in the earlier service, but I, I've come over the years to recognize that nobody wants to raise their hand on a Sunday morning because if you make eye contact with the preacher, something bad's going to happen. So I'm not going to take a poll this morning. You just keep your hands down. You, you, you can put them off if you want to, but I'm not going to recognize them. But if I did take a poll, if I took a poll, and I'm not going to take a poll this morning, unless you're ready for a poll. Are you ready for a poll? Never mind, you're not going to do it. You can't trick me into that. I'm not falling for that. If I took a poll this morning, I think that we would discover that most people think the book of Jude is written about false teachers. But most of you may not realize that the word teacher or false teacher appears nowhere in the book of Jude. And so when we come to the section of Scripture, I think it's important for us to recognize that Jude is talking to us. He's talking to us, normal people like you and me, Christians who gather on a Sunday morning here in church, Yes, the description he has could fit false teachers, but he doesn't say anything about false teachers. And now you're asking, why are you making such a big deal out of this, John? Well, I'll tell you why. Because I know what you do. What you do is you get to the book of Jude and you think, ah, Jude, he's writing to false teachers. I'm not a false teacher, so I don't really need to pay any attention. He's not talking to me. Yeah, I need to keep an eye out for false teachers, but it isn't something that I need to apply to myself. I know you do that because I took a poll this week, personal poll, didn't ask anybody to raise their hand. I polled 12 people, and all 12 of them said, yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, I'll add my number 13 because that's how I feel too. When I see texts about false teachers, here's what I do. I say, yes, I'm a teacher, but I'm not a false teacher, so he's not talking about me. I don't really need to listen to what Jude's having to say. And here's what happens when we do that is that we check out. We check out. We read it, and we just say, oh, this applies to somebody else. We don't listen. We don't apply it to our own lives. We think of other people that we can apply it to. In my case, I think of, 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 uh, of uh, crooked TV evangelists. I think of Joel Osteen or Joyce Myers, and I apply those verses to other people. And that's wrong. That's Satan deflecting the word of God away from me, and I'm pushing it off onto someone else's heart, and that's wrong. So I want to invite you this morning to think very carefully about Jude's warnings here. Because I think he's talking directly to us, to each one of us here in this room here this morning, and we need to pay close attention. And his warning, Jude's warning, is that these certain people have headed down a path, and he doesn't want you to follow them. He's giving us a strong warning not to head down that path. Don't go there. And so we'll unpack that a little bit more this morning as we go. So let's look at verses, uh, we're going to look at verses 11 to 13 in Jude, just three verses. And in these three verses, Jude does two things. He tells us two more things about these certain people. First, he tells us who they were like, and then he tells us what they were like. So if you've got your Bibles open, 
Uh, turn it to Jude, verse 11, and this is what he says. Now, he's talking about these certain people that he's just described. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So who were these certain people like? Well, there were like three men from the Old Testament, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And so it's good for us to look back in the Old Testament and find out just what these guys were all about and find out uh, how, how Jude uh, wants to apply that to people like us uh, today. So we remember Cain from Genesis chapter 4. Cain was the first person born on earth. He was also the first murderer. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 3, we saw that, that, Cain, uh, that Adam and Eve, uh, Cain's parents, Adam and Eve had sinned, and God kicked him out of the garden. And then they began to have a family. They had their first son was named Adam. Sorry, the first name, uh, son was named Cain. The second uh, son was named Abel. Cain was a farmer, and Abel was a shepherd. And it's very clear that Adam had taught his sons how to worship God. And what he told them was something like this. He said, you have to offer the first and the best. And so in the case of Cain, he would have told his son Cain, you need to offer the first fruits or the first part of your harvest as well as the best of your crops for the Lord because he is God. And in Abel's case, he said, you need to take the firstborn of your flocks and offer that to the Lord as well as the choicest, the fattest cuts of meat. And so that's what he told them. And in, and in Genesis chapter 4, when these two young men came to bring their offerings to God, we find what they did in verse uh, 4, in chapter 4 of Genesis uh, 4, sorry, Fourth chapter in Genesis, verses 3 to 5. This is what it says. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. We see a sharp contrast here. Moses, who wrote this, is making a very strong statement, but it's easy to miss unless you dig in a little bit. How does he describe Cain's offering? He describes it as he brought the offering of the fruit of the ground. The fruit of the ground. It's the best thing that, that, that Moses could say about Cain's offering. It's like he said, well, Cain brought some crops. But in the description of Abel's offering, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. He brought the first lamb born to, born to any of the, of the female sheep, and he brought the choicest parts of the meat. It says the fattest, but, but that really talks about the best, tastiest uh, part of the, of the meat. And so Abel, unlike Cain, brought the first and the best. Why was that? I think it's very easy to see that, that Cain had a half-hearted attitude towards God. He wasn't fully committed to God. He wasn't, didn't have a strong personal relationship with the Lord. He didn't consider God to be king of kings and lord of lords, and so when it came time for him to offer, he brought whatever he had. And of course, we know that, that, that Cain got quite jealous of his brother and then and murdered him. But Cain's underlying problem was that he had a, a, a very shallow and casual relationship with God. And so I think what Jude is telling us is that some of the certain people that he's describing also had that kind of attitude towards the Lord. So next we see this guy named Balaam. Uh, Balaam is another man out of the Old Testament. Uh, the, the point here is that Balaam loved money more than he loved God. And you can read this uh, in, in Numbers chapters 22 to 24. Who was Balaam? Well, 
We don't have time to read that. It's a good thing to take it home this afternoon and read Numbers 22 to 24. It's a good story. We don't have time this morning to go through that, but let me just summarize uh, what happened. This took place uh, during the time when, when uh, they were uh, marching in, in the wilderness. And so what had happened was the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God, through Moses, had rescued them out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, and took them directly to the Promised Land. And God said, go in and conquer the Promised Land. You can have this land forever. It's a good land. They sent some spies in. They came back and they said, yeah, it's a good land. Well, we'd love to have that. But there are people living there. They've got armies and they've got giants. And the Israelites were afraid to go in, even though God had told them that he would give them victory. And so the people rebelled against God's command to go in. And that made God quite angry. And so he punished the Israelites by making them wander in the, in the desert for 40 years until all the men of that generation had dropped dead. And it's during this time that we have, uh, we have this guy named Balaam. Now, as they were wandering in the, in the desert, they came across the plains of Moab. Moab being one of the tribes that, was, that, was, uh, that, was, that had a lot of land uh, very close to the promised land. And so when the king of Moab, that is Balak, uh, saw these Israelites, uh, millions of them, moving into the plain of Moab, he said, what are these people doing here? They've come here to attack me. And so he, he garnered his army and was going to go out and fight with the Israelites and to drive them off. But when he numbered them, he realized that he wasn't quite sure that his army could defeat the Israelites. He wasn't sure that that would happen. But he, fortunately for Balak, for King Balak, he had a secret weapon. He had a professional cursor, a professional cursor, and that guy's name was Balaam. Balaam is an interesting character. He was a Moabite, so he lived, in, he lived in, in Moab, but he wasn't an Israelite at all. He was a Moabite. And he was, had a special gift. He had a special gift for cursing and blessing. So those people that he cursed, bad things happened to them, and those of whom he blessed, good things would happen to them. And Balaam got paid a lot of money for doing blessings and curses. You could come and you could offer him money to bless you and your family, and he would do so, and you'd pay him. Or you could ask him to, to curse your enemies or someone you didn't like, and he would do so, and you would pay him. The other strange thing about him is that he loved money. I guess if you do that for a living, it doesn't require a lot of work to curse or bless someone. Uh, it isn't a, a hard, laborious trade that he had, so he loved money. And the other thing we know about him is he had a relationship with God, which is unusual because he was not an Israelite, but somehow he discovered the God of the Israelites and had some kind of relationship with him. So... As time went on, uh, King Balak decided he was going to curse the Israelites. He thought if he cursed the Israelites, then his army could sweep in and defeat them. And so he went to Balaam, and he offered him a lot of money to go and curse the Israelites. Balaam consulted God. He said, God, should I go? And God said, yes, go, but do not, under any circumstances, curse the Israelites. So Balaam got on his donkey and went. And on the way, it's pretty clear from Scripture that he thought a little bit about what he was losing out on. He realized that if he arrived and didn't curse the Israelites, the king wasn't going to pay him the money he was looking forward to. And Balaam loved money more than he loved God. And so along the way, he decided he was going to go ahead and curse the Israelites, even though God had commanded him not to. And so while he's riding on his donkey, God, of course, knowing Balaam's heart, knowing he was planning to curse the Israelites, sent an angel to kill Balaam. And you can read the story. It's kind of cool. He, he gets saved at the last minute only because his donkey talks to him. And it's a very cool story. But that's not the point of the story. Don't stop at the point of the donkey speaking. The point of the story is very simply that Balaam loved money more than he loved God. 
And his life was saved at that point. But the point is, is that his love of money was stronger than his commitment to God. And so when we come to Jude, we see the same analogy and understand that Jude is saying that many of these certain people loved money more than they loved God. The third man that he compares them to is a guy named Korah. So who was Korah? Well, Korah was an Israelite who lived uh, while the, the Israelites were wandering in the desert a few years uh, before the story about Balaam. And as they were marching, of course, we all know that Moses and Aaron were the leaders. God spoke directly to Moses. God gave Moses uh, the Ten Commandments. God told Moses which direction to go and when to march around. God instructed him about, about justice in the Israelite community, and he had a special relationship uh, with Moses. Korah was a Levite whose job it was to work in the tent of meeting, the tent being the thing they carried around and set up and took down when they were marching through the desert. And he was, a, he was one of Moses' cousins. And Korah was a difficult man. He was proud and arrogant. And Korah decided that, that he didn't really uh, like the fact that his cousin Moses was the leader. He was quite jealous of the fact that God spoke only to Moses and Aaron and that they led the people. And he thought to himself, well, wait a minute. What right does Moses and Aaron have to lead these people? I'm a Levite. I can lead these people. And so what he did is he gathered about 250 other men, and he, he talked to them and said, uh, Moses and, and Aaron, they, they, they don't have any right. We've got just as much right as we do to lead this nation, but let's go confront them about this. And so 250 men uh, followed Korah, and they came to Moses and Aaron to confront them and challenge them about their authority and leadership of the Israelites. And we see that in verse, uh, Numbers verses, uh, six, chapter 16, verse 3. It says they, now he's talking about Korah and his 250 friends, says they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And so he was accusing Moses and Aaron of exalting themselves or putting themselves up above the rest of the congregation, even though Korah said, we're all, we're all Israelites. If you know anything about Moses, he's described as, as the most uh, humble man in the kingdom. It never would have entered Moses' mind to do that. In fact, what Korah forgot was that, was that Moses hadn't exalted himself above the people in the, in the congregation, that God had chosen Moses. Moses was God's choice to lead the people of Israel. And so what Korah was doing was he was not only being insubordinate to Moses, but he was challenging God's authority also. Not a good idea. So how did it go for Korah? Well, it did not go well. In fact, Korah and his entire family in their tent camped in the sand. The earth opened up and swallowed them, and the earth came over on top of them and buried them alive. Not a good way to die, but definitely a sign from the Lord. And the 250 men that had followed Korah and confronted Moses and Aaron on his behalf, the Lord sent fire, flames from heaven, and burned them to a crisp. The point of that story, of course, is that Korah, what was his problem? Korah was a proud and self-professing self, uh, man, and he did not submit to the leadership that God appointed. And so when we come to the book of Jude, we can understand that people that Jude is addressing as certain people 
also had a problem with submitting to God-appointed church leaders. So there we have it, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. They were half-hearted worshipers like Cain. They were loved money more than God like Balaam. And they did not submit to church leadership like Korah. So we find three things about these people. But we can go on, and in verses 12 and 13, Jude goes on to describe what the certain people were like. Now, this is a section of Scripture that I find especially fun because Jude gets very poetic in this, and his description is very rich and full. And most of us read this over, and we're kind of going, what is he talking about? So I just want to pull that apart a little bit today. He's describing what, what things they were like, what things in nature that we see that are reflective of the kind of people that these certain people were. So picking it up in Jude uh, chapter 12, we see that he compares them to hidden reefs, to waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. So let's unpack that a bit. Jude 12 to 13 says this. These, he's talking about these people, are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves... Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So let's take those one at a time quickly. Jude first call says that they're hidden reefs at your love feasts. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know how a hidden reef can be at a love fest because a hidden reef is something offshore underwater and love feast is something that takes place in the church. But fortunately, and most of you, depending on the translation, will have a little footnote that says that Greek word for hidden reefs can also be translated as stains or blemishes or spots. And I think that makes more sense. There are stains or blemishes or spots on the love feasts. The love feast is a term that they used for, for what they did in the early church. They used to gather together uh, could have been during the week, could have been on a Sunday, but they gathered together for a community meal, and everybody brought what they had, a little bit of our kind of our modern-day potluck dinner, and then either before or after the dinner, they would serve the Lord's Supper, that is, partake in, in communion in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what was happening was that these, these certain people were showing up, and they were stains, blemishes, or spots on the love feasts. The Lord's Supper, of course, being the most intimate time of worship, and these people had snuck in and were causing a problem. They were causing it to be stained or blemished in some way. Well, what was the problem? Well, the problem was, you remember back in verse 4, uh, verse four of, of Jude, these people denied These people denied that Jesus was Master and Lord. So what are they doing at the Lord's Supper, at Holy Communion, when we celebrate the risen Jesus and look forward to his coming again? What are people doing there who don't even who have already denied Jesus? They don't have any business being there. And it says, it says very clearly that they did so without fear. They had no fear of showing up at the Lord's Supper even though they had denied Jesus. Now Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians uh, that, that he strongly warned Christians to come to the Lord's Supper with proper hearts. That only Christians, those who trusted in Jesus as their personal Savior, could participate in that. They should come with, with uh, confessed sins and a right heart and attitude of thanksgiving to Jesus. 
And he warned them very clearly that as they come forward to participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, they would be calling down judgment from God on themselves. But certain people did it anyway. They did it anyway. They did it without fear. Arrogant fools, frankly. He also called them waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Waterless clouds promise rain, and particularly in the Middle East where rain is a welcome sight. And these clouds would come over and they wouldn't rain, so they, they promised something, but they didn't deliver. And so we get this idea that, that the certain people he's talking about were, were maybe all talk and no action, all, uh, all show and, and no substance. They promised something, but never delivered. And it says they were swept along by the winds. The idea there being is that, is that they're easily driven one way or the other. They don't have a firm foundation, and so they're easily swayed and drawn over to the next shiny object that comes along. They're flaky. He also calls them fruitless trees. We know what fruitless trees are, are trees that produce no fruit. We know that fruit are things that we do in our lives that have an impact for the Lord. And so like dead, uprooted trees, these people don't have any fruit. They don't produce anything useful for the congregation or for God. And then he calls them wild waves of the sea. Wild waves, if you've been out in, a, in an ocean on a, on a, in a storm, you, see, you know that the waves, they, they, they crash and they move in all different directions. First in one direction, then in another direction. And so people that are like wild waves, are, 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 you can never tell where they're going. One moment they're going in one direction, another day they're going in the next direction. And so the, the analogy is pretty clear that they were rather unpredictable and untamed and fickle. And finally, Jude calls them wandering stars. So in... In Jude's day, sailors navigated by following stars. So if you're out in the middle of an ocean with no landmarks or no lighthouses, you would fix upon a star and you'd navigate that way. But during certain times of the year, there are planets that actually appear in the sky. And if you know anything about astronomy, you'll know that several of the planets, including Mercury and Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, can be seen with the naked eye. And they're in the sky, but they look like stars, even though they're not. And while stars, which are very far away, tend to be fixed in the sky and you can navigate off them, planets tend to move across the sky much as the sun does because they're much closer to the earth. And so for a sailor to use a planet like a wandering star, in that respect, he would, his navigation would be totally useless. He'd most likely follow that, that wandering star. There'd be a planet and he'd crash on the rocks and be shipwrecked. And so the point being simply that, that people who are like wandering stars are not people that you'd want to follow. They're not, they don't have a firm foundation. They're not fixed. They're just wandering all over the place. And if you were to follow them, you'd likely get lost or shipwrecked yourself. So those are the descriptions of what these people were like. And so we come back to my original question. Is, is you talking about false teachers or is he talking about us? I think he's talking about us. Because we're a lot like these certain people. We're guilty of the same kinds of things that they do and did. Are we like Cain? Are we half-hearted followers of God? Are we fully devoted followers of Jesus? The answer is no. None of us are fully devoted followers of Jesus. Are we like Balaam? Do we desire, is our desire for money stronger than our commitment to the Lord? Particularly here in America, the richest nation on earth. Here in Tomball, here in Tomball Bible Church. It's easy for us to get more interested in the size of our houses, the kinds of cars that we drive, 
and whether we've got the latest high-tech equipment. And we're more worried about our retirement fund than we are about giving to the Lord. Are we like Korah? Do we disrespect the leaders in the church? Or if elders were to come up this morning and, and announce a major shift and change in what we do, would you follow? Or would you say something like, I don't know, I may go find another church. Are we like hidden reefs or blemishes on the Lord's Supper? When we come on a Sunday morning, do we come with hearts confessed and fully aligned with God? Have we got our, our relationships all figured out? Or do we come in a casual manner on a Sunday morning? Are we possibly guilty of calling down the same judgment when we come in an unworthy manner? Are we like waterless clouds? Do we make promises and not keep them? Do we tell people we'll do something and then we don't follow through? We don't bring any rain? Are we like waterless clouds that gets pushed one way or the other by the winds of change? One week we're following one idea, the next week we're often following something else. Are we like fruitless trees? Do we produce anything good? If I asked your coworker or your, your classmate or one of your neighbors whether you're a good, solid Christian, would he be able to say, yeah, that person is distinctively different? Or would they say, no, he's just like one of the rest of us? Are we like wandering stars? If people followed us, would they get lost? Or do we, do we, do we, are we good leaders? Are we good leaders of our children and those around us so they'd be able to follow us on the right path? These are questions that we all need to ask ourselves and I need to ask myself. This isn't stuff that just applies to false teachers. The bigger issue, frankly, is that there's a lot of risk here. Much is at risk. Because if we follow this kind of a pattern, Judah's telling us these certain people were going down this path towards condemnation. Condemnation. We're talking about going to hell. If you look back at chapter at verse 13 of Jude, you'll see it very clearly at the end. He says he's talking about the wild waves of the seas, casting up the foam of their shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude is saying that the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever for these certain people. You, you, you can't imagine that that's anything except hell. It's utter gloom and darkness, and it is forever. He's talking about hell. And so he's saying that the path that these certain people were on, all the descriptions he gives us, the path that they're on is they're heading for hell. They're condemned. So... Why? Why are these people condemned? Why are they going to hell? Is it because they're not fully committed followers of Jesus? Is it because their theology is a little bit off? Is it because they love money a little bit too much? Is it because they don't submit to church leadership? Is it because they're a little flaky and fickle, like wandering stars and waves of the sea? No. You don't get condemned for all that. You get condemned, you get sent to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. Remember verse 4. Jude verse 4 says very clearly, it's talking about the certain people who crept in unnoticed, long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny 
our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These people denied the only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The people in Jude's day denied Jesus. And that's why they were condemned. Deny Jesus and you deny the only one who can save you from your sins. We sang this just earlier. We sang, what can wash away my sins? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, if you deny me, I will deny you before God the Father. He says that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. These certain people in Jude's church that he's writing to had had wandered so far down this path that they denied Jesus and reserved themselves a place in hell. And so Jude's warning is, don't go there. Don't ever go there. Don't ever go there. There's no return from that. Now, Jews' warnings are as applicable today in 2017 as they were 2,000 years ago when Jude wrote them to the early church. Because let's face it, we're all sinners, all of us. Some of us hold false beliefs. Some of us are not fully committed to Jesus. In fact, all of us are not fully committed to Jesus. Some of us love money and our wealth and our stuff more than we love God, although we would never admit that. Some of us don't respect or submit to church authority in small ways or big ways. Some of us don't exhibit fruit in our lives. Some of us are flaky, prone to wander around, not fully committed, but question is, what do we do about that? What do we do about that? You know, we exist to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. And so this is where discipleship comes in and makes a big play. This is why discipleship is so important. Discipleship for Christians is all about a mature Christian man or woman coming alongside a less mature man or woman. The mature Christian being well-grounded in doctrinal and faith and has many more years of experience of life and how to react to them in a godly way. And they come alongside one another in a one-to-one relationship and share to help identify false beliefs that the younger Christian might have, to identify areas in his or her life that's not fully aligned with the doctrine or the principles of, of our Bible comes alongside to hold each other accountable, to set an example, to pray for one another, to model, to mentor, to coach, and most importantly, to study the Bible together. Most importantly, study the Bible together. If you have a discipleship relationship and you're not studying the Bible together, you're not really having a discipleship relationship. You're just getting together. Bible study is an essential part of having a discipleship relationship. Why? Because the best of men are men at best. Even the most mature, solid Christian man or woman is going to err. They're going to make mistakes. The best Sunday school class teacher, the best small group uh, leader, the best preacher or teacher is going to err. 
But if you're studying the Word of God together, that's the sure foundation of that relationship. Because the Bible is sure, it is certain, it is infallible, it is true. And if we use that as a foundation for everything we do, we can't go wrong. But we've got to be in it to do it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says it very clearly. It says, for the word of God is living and active. The word of God referring, of course, to the words in your Bible. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God has an ability to strike like a sword right into your heart, sort of scrape away all those false beliefs, to scrape away all those, those inaccurate intentions that you may have, and studying that together with another Christian will allow you to do that, will allow the Word of God to penetrate your heart and do that. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture, everything in your Bible is breathed out by God and comes out in the pen of the men who wrote it. And it's profitable. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word of God, together, being actively pursued in a discipleship relationship, whether one-on-one or in a small group or in a larger setting, by digging deep into the Word of God is the only thing that's going to move a Christian from a path that's half-hearted, love of money, rebellious, unable to submit to church leadership, fruitless in a wandering, wave-like experience to a true path that's more and more committed to Jesus every day that's firmly committed to God, committed to the truth, leading and following in humility, able and willing to submit to church leadership, demonstrating fruit in their lives, having a steady, unshakable foundation in the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you for the letter of Jude. Lord God, it's a heady and weighty reminder, Lord God, that many people have walked down a path that leads to destruction. And we know the symptoms because Jude makes it very clear, and yet when we pick these apart and we think about them and apply them to ourselves, we recognize that we're all sinners and we all walk a fine line. And we just pray, Lord God, that each of us, me first, would take to heart what Jude warns us about. That we do all we can to be firmly rooted and grounded in your truth. That we would contend for the truth in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And that we'd go back to the Bible all the time to recognize that that's where truth, that's where your sure foundation stands. Lord, guard us and protect us that we might never go down the path that the certain people did who end up condemned. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray all these things in the powerful name. Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.